AL2 listeners, you can find audio from this series and other series alongside study guides and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions following this podcast, you can email feedback at l2today.com. We have several readings today. The first one is Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed for, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 2 Corinthians 5:21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2 Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. And the last reading is from 1 Peter 1, 3-5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the, res- through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Um, This morning we're going to be talking about gospel fluency. Last week we actually began this new series, and I I asked you the question that I think is really germane to this whole entire series. You know, how do you explain why the discussions about our faith oftentimes don't go the way we expect? Oftentimes they go really, really bad. And conversely, how do you explain when some people can engage those discussions and completely defy all the assumptions we have? It seems almost like there's kind of a way that they do it that, that kind of opens it up. And so I, I think any of us have seen both of those occurrences. And what we're intending to do through this, this series on offering a, a, a counter-narrative is to be able to examine some of the some of the issues of the gospel that I think we take for granted, I think we're going to be focusing primarily on that today, but then to look at some of the practices that, that these people that actually can talk about it, what they do, how they hold to them, how they understand them. And so hopefully over the next several weeks we're going to be able to kind of make this look really, really practical. Now, last time we looked at the necessity of a counter-narrative out of First Peter chapter 3 where... It's not enough just for you to be prepared to just refute people who don't believe, who don't believe in Christianity. You have to be able to offer a counter-narrative that is, is really in regard to what they're believing to be true. And so in one sense, it's impossible for any of us to have kind of a pre-prepared, canned approach. It's not going to work that way any longer. And it's important for us to be able to discern and understand how it is a person is what he or she is holding as a belief narrative personally. 
and then to be able to respond to that by offering a counter-narrative that shows and demonstrates that Christianity really is a credible and compelling system of belief. Um, last week we also looked from Romans chapter 1 at the fact that Paul outlines there a, a way to get at that counter-narrative that really is deeply embedded in what all of us worship. In other words, if you learn what a person worships, you're going to find out very quickly what he or she is believing, the belief narrative behind that. Now, this morning what we're going to begin to do is, is look at some simple kind of concepts of the gospel that I think oftentimes can kind of fall off our radar. But without them, you're not going to be able to speak to the range or the variety of circumstances that you run into. And if, if we ever want to be those kind of people that can talk about our faith, we're going to have to be able to do it in just a variety of different circumstances and situations. I'd like to begin this morning by just asking you a simple question that we should be asking ourselves and each other far more than I think we do because we take this for granted. What actually is the gospel? Now, for those of you that ever have come in to counsel with me, you, you know I ask this question a lot because I'm always curious how it is that people have taken what they've heard or what they've experienced and how it kind of narrows, funnels down into kind of a kernel of understanding about the gospel. Now, I, I think as our culture is changing, it's much harder on you than it was for me when I was your age. Um, and the reason I say that is that, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, you know, Christianity was presented to people primarily from these little tracks that people carried around. They were dog-eared, and they typically began their, like Billy Graham's track, uh, Steps to Peace with God, was written after World War II. And then when quantum physics became kind of the obsession, uh, you know, in the technological world and the scientific expansion of secularism, what happened, you know, then it got presented in another track called Four Spiritual Laws. Well, I'm telling you right now, those tracks aren't working anymore. The moment that you actually default to something that you're reading to another, another person today, they're completely turned off. And so there's something that's rapidly changing that I think we have to be able to, to deeply understand, but it's, it's lodged in this understanding of the gospel. Now, if you're not a Christian today, the chances are you have actually looked at the gospel at one point or another. I think that there's many people that I know that no longer would profess to be Christians, but at one time in their life, they really were. There was a part of their life, whether it was their upbringing, whether it was the part of the country that they lived in, they saw Christianity as credible, but they come to a point that they don't any longer. Now, in those situations, about somewhere around 30% of my counseling today would, would be with people who aren't Christians, and many of them are outright agnostics or uh, atheists in their professions, um, I always ask them, tell me what you think Christianity is. Tell me how you understand it. And over all the years that I've done this, I, I have never had a person once explain Christianity to me that they've rejected in a way that's compelling at all. In other words, almost all the time once they're done, I will tell them, if that's what it was, I wouldn't believe it either. 
And they always look at me kind of strangely, and they say, well, what do you mean that's what you believe? And it, I have to tell them, that's not what I believe. I don't believe what you've rejected is true Christianity. And so hopefully over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be able to kind of qualify some, some of the issues that I think we tend to overlook, we tend to take for granted as we do this. Now, when Paulina read the scripture this morning, she began with the context that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And it's interesting there that Paul starts by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel in verse 16. And what he's doing is expressing his confidence that no matter what he faced, he didn't believe that he would be embarrassed that he believed the gospel. Foundationally, there was something there that he says, I'm not ashamed. I don't believe that there's anything that you can tell me that would cause me to be embarrassed that I believe the gospel. Now, that begs the question, how did he get to that point of confidence? Because I, I think most of us are a little bit fearful that the engagement with these types of discussions, sooner or later, they're, they're going to go badly and we're going to be embarrassed. And so the question is, how did he get there? Now, I think there's two answers that come from those, from those verses. Is number one, he believed that it was the power of God is in the gospel which tells you deep inside of him, he believed that he wasn't alone. He believed that his engagement with other people in regard to the gospel, he believed that his living out the gospel in his everyday life actually was being attended by the power of God. The second thing that we can deduce from just those two verses is that he believed that the gospel's primary purpose was to reveal the righteousness of God, and then there's this little clause, from faith for faith. Now that tells you something else that's really curious there because he's basically saying not only is the power of God at work in the gospel, it is revealing the righteousness of God person to person. In other words, he said, this is what it's really about. It's about converting people from unbelief to belief and they become, like Jesus said, like a light on a hill, a city on a hill that can't be hidden, a light that is not put under a bushel basket and hidden away it becomes a benefit to everyone in the room, which is depicting your life. In other words, when we're converted to Christianity, not only are we not going to be ashamed, the power of God is actually attending our efforts unto the ability that we have from faith for faith. From our faith emanates a faith for others to see. And that's really interesting to me. Now, over the years at L2, you've heard us say over and over again that, <clears throat> that the gospel is not, technically the term is exclusively soteric. Now, sozo is the term to be saved, and you can kind of set that aside for a moment. What we're basically saying is that the gospel is not exclusively a message of personal salvation. Now, chances are the majority of you, when I ask that question, what is the gospel, you resorted to your mind, in your mind to ideas and concepts about the gospel that pertain to you personally in regard to your own salvation. And that's true, but that's not all that's true. The gospel is a declaration of universal redemption. God is fixing everything that has fallen, whether it's people, cultures, cultures nations, even the creation we live in. He's at work in doing all of that. 
And so we remind, that, remind you of that over and over again, but in spite of you understanding it that way, there's still a need that you, you and I have to understand how does it speak to my personal salvation? How is it that I can talk about it if I don't really understand that aspect of it? So you have to really kind of get both parts of it. And so what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks is kind of drilling down on some of these issues in order to kind of expose and show you how, how you can really talk about the gospel, whether it's on a cosmic level and God redeeming all things, or whether it's really in an intensely personal exchange about how you understand your own faith. Now, to do that, we have to be able to understand how God has saved us in the past, how he's saving us today, and how he's going to save us in the future. Now, what I'm going to share with you today I basically completely ripped off from Jeff Vanderstelt. Uh, he did, he did a, a series called Gospel Fluency. There's probably about six hours of lectures that you can watch online. The link is in the, in the sermon notes. And I'm going to condense a lot of that that he said into what we're going to be looking at this morning. And hopefully it's going to be able to make a lot of sense. So I want to start with this first point that God has saved us in the past. Now, this is how Jeff articulates this point. He said, God has saved us from the penalty of sin for the purpose of being his children. Now, the reason that you need to understand this aspect of the gospel, God saving us in the past, is because it speaks to all the circumstances in the people that you know that are being crushed by how they lived. In other words, they know they suck. They, they know they went into a marriage and they completely violated their vows. They didn't do what they promised. They signed a contract for a company and they, their behavior in the company, their behavior with the people and the customers is reprehensible in their mind and therefore they're living under this crushing weight of guilt and shame. But understanding how the gospel speaks to God saving us in the past can free a person. It can give, uh, it can give him or her a, a, an incredible amount of hope and understanding about how they can actually come out from under that shame and guilt. Now, if you look at the Bible kind of in a macro form, you, ha you begin to see that salvation that God is going to give to his people is always pointing towards Jesus' coming all the way from the third chapter of Genesis through throughout the Old Testament, God's people are told again and again to look to a Savior that's going to show up in history and change everything. And so the Jews always had, Israel always had kind of a, an attitude towards things, almost a kind of an arrogance that transcended everything because they believed sooner or later God himself was going to show up and deliver them. Now, in the New Testament, when Jesus shows up and he says in John 14, 6, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And then in Luke eleven twenty, he says the kingdom of heaven has come. The kingdom of heaven is here. He was basically saying, everything that you've ever heard pointed to me. Now, not only was that important in the first century, it's important for us now because we actually have to look back into what he did to say, well, how did that save us? If he made those claims, what is it about them that actually would change 
anything about the way we live. Now, the verse that you heard from 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, there Paul is explaining that Jesus' death was a substitute. In other words, what he's saying there is that God made his son who knew no sin to be sin. And he's basically talking about an exchange in which God actually put sin, everything that we ever thought and did that was wrong, everything that we could possibly be ashamed of, everything that we wish if we could go back we would do differently, he put on him. Now, in Isaiah 53, 750 years before, before Paul would write this, it says that the Lord was pleased to crush him. And what's that saying is that the salvation that God brought into the lives of his people, though the Old Testament is looking forward to it, we are looking back to it, and it allows us to believe that God has done something in that transaction that would allow him to treat his son as if he lived your life and treat you as if you lived Jesus' life. Now, I'm not going to go much deeper into that idea of a substitutionary atonement, but that's one of the essential components of salvation in Christianity and in Christ. Now, when you begin to look at that, there are, there's an amazing amount of implications that come out of that, but I want to show you three of them that we oftentimes completely take for granted. But if you're going to understand this and be able to talk to someone that is just, just crushed under the shame and the guilt of all that they've done or haven't done in the past, you need to understand these three things because they're at the forefront, they should be at the forefront of our thinking. And the first is that when you believe the gospel, God actually says he's forgiven you. That seems simple enough. But what that means is God is saying, look, we're good. We're good. But I cannot tell you over the years how many people I know that can't, they can't believe that. And it's, it, sometimes it's because other people can't forgive them. Their parents can't forgive them for what they did. The business can't forgive them. The state can't forgive them and let them go out of jail. And so they're living under this, under the shame and this guilt that oftentimes is being calibrated by the people around them and they refuse to listen to what God says, to say, look, come to me. I'll make your yoke easy and your burden light. If you come to me and you believe the gospel, if you put your faith in my son, we're good. And as simple as that sounds, many people who claim to be Christians, the most difficult thing, they can't forgive themselves. But I'm, I'm here to tell you that what the scripture says about what God did to his son to provide salvation to us in the Christian faith is saying that it's unbelief if you can't forgive yourself. You're setting yourself up as a higher authority than God himself. And so one simple thing that we have to remember is that if we believe the gospel, God is saying, I've forgiven you. The second thing that it's saying is that God actually has made you his child. When we believe the gospel, the Bible says that we're adopted as children of God. And he makes us his sons and daughters. Now, the implication of that is that the gospel is showing you that you're not alone in the world anymore. You don't have to live like an orphan any longer. And that radically changes how a person actually is capable of investing his or her life in the world around them. 
because they know they're forgiven and because they know they've actually become the children of God. Now, the third one is probably the most important that I, that I can think of as a counselor, is that, is that God is now actually for you and not against you. In other words, we, when you believe the gospel, you are transformed from the position of being an enemy of God to now being a child of God. And so he's not standing against you. Your confidence in a God that is omnipresent everywhere in the world, your confidence in a God that's omniscient, he knows all things, your confidence in a God that's omnipotent, all-powerful, is that he not only loves you and has received you and forgiven you and made you his child, he's actually at work in your life for you and not against you. Now, the reason I bring that up is that oftentimes we put ourselves in this tenuous place to say, well, I don't know if I've really believed it or not. Well, that shouldn't really be a big question. Have you believed it or have you not? What are the decisions of your life showing you about what you really do believe? But if you have put your faith in the gospel, you have to be able to believe God's word that says, you're forgiven, you're my child, and I'm, I'm in your life as a positive, positive influence at work to change your life. Now, I'm going to show you throughout this these two practical manifestations of that truth that I think are going to help you grasp this. The first is our, our repentance. Let me ask you a question. What brings about a sustainable change in your life? A forcible behavioral change or a change in your thinking? A change that comes about by you just snapping your wrists by a rubber band, with a rubber band to somehow reinforce negative thoughts towards the things you were going to previously do, or a real deep change in your thinking. See, many of us have this concept that repentance is actually saying, okay, I was doing this or not doing something that God does require, and I simply turn around and start doing the other thing. That's not repentance. That's behavioral modification. True repentance comes from a change of thinking that results in a change of affections that then changes your conduct. That's true repentance. And so our understanding and practice of repentance changes because we're actually looking to our faith to say, what is it about this that's causing me to want what God forbids and not want what he requires? And we're able to investigate our faith to see what he says, and it changes the way we think that then in turn brings about a change in our affections and conduct. Now, the second th practical implication of believing what God has done in saving us in the past is that it really changes our blaming of others. Now, listen to this deeply because I, I think each of us needs to answer the question, why is it that we're so prone to blame other people when things go wrong? Is it because we think if they're wrong, we're less wrong? Or if they're wrong, we're right? About 18 years ago, I had a, a counseling. I'm going to share a lot about my counseling. I'm going to change everything up so you wouldn't know this person if you looked at her in the, in the teeth. But I can tell you, that was kind of a, kind of a, kind of a joke. Um, it was kind of a nervous laugh, actually. It's not you. Um, but about 18 years ago, I, this woman started attending our church, and she, she wore gloves and dark glasses, and she came into my office, and she had a very prominent position in another state. She, she was 
actually the superintendent of a whole school district. And her life in Denver had collapsed into a place where she just stayed at home with tinfoil on the walls and drank wine and smoked, smoked dope and listened to Black Sabbath every day. And I mean, she's in, she, she was in a really bad place. Um, at the point that I met her, she was on seven different medications. She was cutting herself profusely. And as I got to know this over the next couple of weeks, we finally came on to the fact, I asked her, I said, are you married? And she said, no. And I said, tell me about your husband. And at the time, in my office right over here, there was chairs right in front of my desk. And she suddenly, like, went berserk and started flailing her legs and kicked one of the, it was a raised panel desk that I had, and she kicked the panel out of the front of my desk. And immediately, she snapped out, and she just, she was just profusely apologizing. I said, don't worry about it. I said, as soon as you go, I'll glue it back in. And so I glued it back in. She came in the next week, and as soon as her husband came up, she kicked out both panels. And so I glued it back in. She came in the next week, and the next week I moved the chairs back so her feet couldn't... <laughs> but what I found out is that she needed her husband to be the devil incarnate. See, she needed him to be the worst human being that ever walked the planet. Because the worse he was, if he was that, then nobody could blame her for what she had done in her life. And the thought of him being just a bad dude, he, he sounded like a really bad dude. I wouldn't know if I tripped over him because I've never met him. But I can tell you that she could not tolerate the fact that he was not the worst human being. Because the moment he was less than that, she was directly responsible. Why is it that we blame? Why is it that we're so quick to put each other in the spotlight of our scrutiny? Now, I actually think that there is a part to this that's kind of a twisted idea of the gospel. Because we want somebody else to die. We want somebody else to be crushed like we're crushed. That's why we blame. But you see, the gospel's telling you that nobody else can do that for you. Go ahead and put all the blame of your life on everybody else but yourself, and it's not going to do you any good. For 23 years, I've sat in this room talking to people, hundreds of them, that have done everything in the world that they can do to blame their parents, to blame their wives, to blame their children, to blame their husbands, to blame their employers, to blaming the government, to blame their education, because they've got it sealed in their mind that there's a direct correspondence to the guilt of other people and their own innocence. But that's why it's so twisted in its ability to tell you the gospel. God said, that's the only way it's going to work. You can't do this for yourself. You crush yourself, you crush other people, you're still guilty. But if you let me put it on my son, on your behalf. We're good. So God has saved us in the past. Two amazing, I think, amazing implications that come from that. Now, the second point, God is saving us today, is just as important. Vanderstel put it this way. He said, God is saving us from the power of sin today for the purpose of bringing him glory by the power of his spirit in all things. Now, this aspect 
of the gospel enables us to speak to the person who is paralyzed by the complexity of the world. She, doesn't, she knows she doesn't understand it. It's far too complicated. And she, in light of that understanding, she knows it's highly likely that she's going to continue to make a series of decisions that are not going to end well. And so she's almost gripped with anxiety and a paralyzing fear because the world's not getting any simpler to her. She can't just push it away. So this part of the gospel is really important to speaking to other people. Now, the passage you heard from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first one, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, we are being saved. We're being saved. If we hold fast. In other words, something that we believe has to be continually held on to. Now, the way the scripture shows that is that that primarily comes into our life by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, it says, you, how, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so God is saving us from sin right now, today. I was going to tell a joke, but I'm not going to right now. And so th there's two things. I think if you step back, you can, you can actually begin to see pretty clearly that the primary ways that the Spirit does that, saves us today, number one is by revealing truth to us. In the midst of the upper room discourse in John's Gospel, in John 14 and verse 26, uh, 25 and 26, it says this, These things I have spoken to you, while well, I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. It's one of the roles of the Spirit in our lives when we become Christians is to show us the truth. The other thing is that the Spirit convicts us of sin. Now, both of these are important. I'm going to show you this symmetry in just a moment. Again, in the Upper Room Discourse, John records in chapter 16 and verse 8, he said, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, I want you to think of a little boy that has a truck, and he stands at the top of a hill, and he lets it go, and he says, Dad, watch, this is going to roll right into the box at the bottom. But all the way down, he stands over the truck, and he's bumping it one way or the other way. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's correcting your life. He's showing you the truth that shows you how to understand things, but he's showing you when you're off course by convicting you of sin. Now, the practical way that this manifests, manifests our lives, I think is attached to almost a mantra that you've heard. If, you've, if, if you, any of you have ever done any coaching, if you read motivational books or just go on Twitter, um, and you're going to find this mantra that we hear in our culture over and over today, it says, be yourself. Be true to yourself. What does that mean? Surely it doesn't mean that you need to just let go and rip off and chase every single idea that goes through your mind. If you do that, I'll probably be visiting you in jail. Because we all have stupid stuff that's going through our minds. So what does it mean to be true to yourself? Now I think the best connotation that we can actually give it in a sincere way is intellectual integrity. Intellectual honesty that comes from you actually knowing you're not acting as if 
You believe something that you don't. Nor are you willing to act like you don't believe something when you do. And so when you lay your head on your pillow at night or you look in your face in the mirror in the morning, you're able to know that there's some coherence between what you really do say and believe to be true and what your life is like. One thing I commend you young dudes for is the culture that you live in absolutely abhors and hates hypocrisy. You don't have any time for duplicity. I wish it could have been that way back in the late 70s and 80s because I've seen so much of it in the church. It's just it's ridiculous. But you're not, you guys aren't like that. I think it's commendable, but you're going to have to figure it out, what you believe. Now, I want to share another statement from you that Vanderstelt says this, that sanctification is actually a process of not, being, not becoming able to do good works better. That's not sanctification, he said. Sanctification is a continual process by which the Spirit of God is moving you from unbelief to belief. That is a really good definition. Sanctification is the process of you moving from your unbelief to your belief. Now that's embedded in the work of the Holy Spirit because he's showing you how to understand and to perceive things in a way that's consistent with God. And he's also showing you when you get off course. He convicted you, he's conv uh, convicting you of sin. And so he, this part of the gospel allows you to know that you're holding your faith sincerely. You really do believe it. It's not some static set, set, set of principles that you believed at your grandmother's house sometime when you were 10. It's something that's at work dynamically in your life because God is shining light into some ways and showing you you can't go off the path in the other ways. And he's, it's a dynamic expansion of our faith through all things. And this is what makes it so important in our culture today. Because you are constantly going deeper. You can't help it if the Spirit of God is in you. You're constantly understanding your faith better than you did before. You're continually moving beyond this little set of almost infantile principles that you believed in the beginning because it's now so relevant to how you conduct yourself with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It's so, it's so fresh and relevant to the way that you establish the culture in the business you're starting. It's so necessary for you to be able to stand up and say that you will love this woman till death do you part. You can't engage in any of those without your faith. And so, this is an amazingly important part, that God saves us in the past, but he's saving us today. He didn't leave us in a simple place for us to be orphans wandering in the darkness and saying, well, hope to see you in heaven. It's not like that. And this aspect of it is remarkably engaging and important to our culture today. Now, it brings us to this last one, that God will save us in the future. And again, this is what Al Vanderstelt put this point. He said, God will save us from the presence of sin for eternal joy in the presence of our King, Jesus. And so this part of it speaks to the person who's living in despair. Now, you would think with an expanding con economy, the hottest real estate mar market in the United States right now here in Denver, 
legal weed, all the stuff that people would come to Denver for. The Broncos, uh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, all of those things, you would say, people must be happy. Surely people in Denver have to be the happiest people. Heck, you guys have 300 days of sunshine a year. Aren't you happy? I'm telling you, we're not happy. As a society, we're not happy. And it seems almost like we've become spoiled children. Have you ever watched them at Christmas time? They open one present and they can't wait to push it aside to get to the next one and the next one and the next one. But when you get out of college and your dad's not paying the bills anymore, how many more are there? How many relationships are you going to go through before you're convinced that you don't know how to choose a mate? How many times do you have to experience a broken heart because you trusted a man or a woman who really didn't care about you at all and you couldn't see it? You took jobs and moved across the country because, Eureka, we found it. Only to end up in an unemployment line because nobody really cared about you. As long as you could do something for them, they cared. But the moment you needed them, they didn't. How many times do you have to figure that out? You see, for some reason, there is a sense of reality present in our culture today that's locked into this idea of despair. Because I think many of us have become those spoiled children. We can't have what we once had. We can't have what we now want. And therefore, when we look at the future, it's really bleak. The period of time in our counseling center leading up to the holidays was brutal this year. Suicide attempts, cutting, abandonment. I've never seen anything like it. All among Teenagers, kids today can see through our lives oftentimes better than we can and they have no hope. They have no hope at all. Now this passage from 1 Peter 3 is interesting because in 1 Peter 1, rather, in, in verse 3 to 5, Peter just simply says, he says that your salvation has a future element to it that's a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, at the very end of human history. And our lives are being guarded unto that day. So it's impossible to think of the gospel as it pertains to us personally without thinking of that, or we're unbelieving. Peter is, he's talking to a bunch of people that were living in conditions that most of us couldn't even imagine. And he said, hold on to the reality that there is a salvation, as good as it is that you already know, it's still so good in the future. And that orients our thinking in a very interesting way. There's a future hope that we look forward to that actually is capable of putting all of our lives back into perspective. God fulfilling a promise to create a new heaven and a new earth. That He says, you know, my dwelling place is going to be with you. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. 
And all your tears I'm going to wipe away. The death is going to one day end. And there'll be no more pain, mourning, or sorrow. Trust me. And once a person takes that deep into his or her heart, it, it produces this amazing perspective for the rest of life that you can't have any other way. Now, the practical manifestation of this in our life is simply this, that each of us must continually face the uncertainty of life tomorrow. I love doing weddings because they, weddings and funerals are the strangest acts of faith in our culture today, and almost nobody ever gets it. Because when you think about tomorrow, it's like almost like putting a bright light bulb behind your, behind your head and shining through your thoughts and projecting something into the future that you know nothing about. Jesus says, we don't know what our lives are going to be like tomorrow. But when you come to a funeral, everybody's wondering, where do you think she's at now? Some of you are saying, well, she's just gone. Some of you are saying, well, she's being reincarnated. You know, some of us would say, well, maybe she's in a better place. But you see, that's a projection of something that's going through your mind. But so, that's exactly what happens at a wedding. You've got a man and a woman standing there, and they're promising something about the future that they have no control over. They're projecting something about what they're thinking now that has everything to do with then. And they're saying, I will always love you. No matter what, I will never turn from you until we die, I promise. And they say it all the time, right? There's something that is so related to what they're thinking now and what they think about the future that it's inseparable in their mind. And I always ask them, I don't do a lot of premarital counseling anymore, but when I do, I'll tell them, I want you to make sure that the day that you're married, you are more convinced than you could possibly ever imagine yourself being that your life together with her is better together than it would ever be apart. Or don't do it. Or your life with him is better than it could possibly be apart. Or don't do it. But you see those starry eyes and all that money that they spend and all the experience that's leading up to them walking up at this stage and making those promises is predicated and built on the fact that they know that to the depth of their being. And most of the time they don't. Many, many times it's wrong. And they lie. And they break their word. But there's something about the gospel, the way it projects and pulls out your thinking to the future that shows you the necessity of understanding things as they are and yet seeing things as they will be. One of the most distinctive elements of the gospel is its forward vision in helping us understand today and yet believe something about tomorrow. Where does your hope for tomorrow come from? See, most of you, I know this for a fact, most of you don't ask yourself that question. It's just coming from somewhere. For some of you, it's just you're optimistic. For some of you, it's you're pessimistic. For some of you, you're, you're just kind of hoping against hope, a dream of dreams. But when you really get down to it, you, if you're going to listen to the gospel, you have to believe that God has put something out there for you to hold on to about what is going to happen and how it will happen. And Christians are simply those that say, look, 
I suck at predict predicting the future. I would never buy Powerball. I would never bet because I suck at predicting things. But I've known that, I've come to know that over the years. But some of us actually think, I've got this. And we choose to hold on to what we think about the future rather than what God says. And the gospel allows us to speak to people who are despairing and to challenge them as to whether or not they will continue to believe what they think or what God says about what will happen. Every one of us has experienced this, the power of this, the power of vision, the power of understanding now. If you've ever lost any weight, if you've ever applied yourself to an athletic or academic pursuit, if you've ever even given yourself to a, a relationship, even with an animal, you had to imagine what it was like, not an animal as a person, I mean like a dog. <laughs> just, just to make sure, some of you will get that later. Um, and so maybe we, we have to admit that this happens all the time, that we can appraise things as they are. Man, I don't like the way I look after the holidays. Okay, I need to do this to get where I want to go. And there's something in the functioning of those fitting together that causes us to apply ourselves unto that end. It brings about a, almost a natural kind of alignment with what needs to be done and how we're going to actually get there. This is what the, the Gospels say. So there's a very practical expression of God's power to guard our lives as we can look at them and see that there's an amazing alignment with what we believe will happen in the days to come. Now, Jim Elliott, before he died, he was the one that quoted a really famous quote that he said, a man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Shows you he got this. A man is no fool who gives up things he cannot hold on to to gain the things that can never be taken away from him. He got it. And the gospel enables us to speak deeply to that. All right, that's what I've got for today. I hope that is helpful to look at those three aspects, because those three things allow you to speak to an amazing breadth of variation in, in uh, topics that people are dealing with today. Now, starting next week and then the following 10 weeks, this is what we're going to do, really simple. We're going to start with a simple narrative of what somebody who does not believe the gospel, perhaps believes the gospel, is holding on to. And then to show you how the gospel actually speaks to that. It's going to be remarkably practical and simple. And I think at the end of this process, many of you will be able to articulate your faith in a way that is far better than it is today, in a way that has far better outcomes than it does today. All right, let me take a couple questions and we'll be done. Regarding blaming others, is it also wrong to be angry at others who suddenly choose to cease their support of us when, in the past, they have told us they could or would support us? That's a pretty complicated question. Um, is it also wrong to be angry at others? I believe that you have to be very, very, very careful with your anger. I do. Whenever I give myself to perm permission to be angry at someone, it's like a monster that I never can get back into the room. And it takes me over. It, 
it's always far worse than I thought. If I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to tell him what I'm thinking. I'm going to kind of let him have it a little bit. Not full throttle, because I know I'll probably be embarrassed at what I say. But I'm going to give him half throttle. It's always full throttle. It's like, where the heck did that come from? And anger is something that is an emotion that's far more difficult to control than you realize. And so I would think twice about actually allowing yourself to abide anger towards someone who didn't live the way they said they would. Now, we're humans. We're human beings. And if you tell me you're going to do something and you don't do it, ask the staff. I'm kind of a jackass to work for. Because if you tell me you're going to do something and you don't do it, it's, I'm going to let you know about it. Because I live that way. And, but I'm telling you right now, I have to be careful with my anger, and I think all of you should. So be careful with that one, for sure. Is there anything wrong with you actually being point out, pointing, be able to point out, I hired you for this job, and you're not doing your job? No, there's nothing wrong with that. But don't let it kind of seed itself in your anger. It, it might take you to places you never thought you could go. Next question. How do we reconcile Jesus saying, my yoke is light, on its face, implying Christianity is easy to take on, with Jesus describing the narrow way, on its face, implying Christianity is not easy to take on? Where did you get these questions today? <laughs> That's a tension. That's a tension. I think the easy yoke part comes from you being able to say, I have a Savior that loves me and has received me. And so I'm not on my own anymore. But it's that very Savior that said, look, if you are not willing to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, don't, don't bother. It's the man who loses his life that's going to find him. It's the same Savior, right? And so there's something about the gospel that tensions us between the fact to say, all right, compared to how I was living, this is easy. But at the same time, man, it's a narrow gate that leads to a narrow way, as opposed to a wide gate and a wide way that goes right to destruction. I can tell the difference. And there's tension. There's tension in that. Irreconcilable tension. Last question. Hopefully, oh, there's one more. How should Christians make a distinction in a winsome manner between the falsity of blaming others and true victimhood, both in the lives of those to whom we witness and in our battle to overcome sin patterns. What, what, I, what I perceive about that question is to say, how do we actually distinguish between the two when we're really victims? H how do we avoid a victim mentality as opposed to being able to say, I really am. Let me just start it in general. In general, I would say, you, you young dudes, you live in a culture of victimhood. Your schools, most of your parents, even a lot of Christian churches are more than willing to blow up in your mind that balloon of you being a victim and it being everybody else's fault. And I'm telling you, you better develop a pretty sophisticated sense of it or you're going to be taken 
captive by it. It's just a matter of time. There's so much in our world that is oriented towards victimhood. And you need to be very, very astute at identifying it. Now, having said that, we've all been sinned against. We have. But we've sinned. We've all had things fall to us in a way that isn't equitable because the world is filled with a lot of injustice. And whether it's coming out in the parking lot and the, the, you know, the glass from your taillight is laying on the ground and someone was just bad enough to just drive away without leaving a note. And you're thinking, there's $500 or whatever. I know they're expensive, but maybe not $500. You're, you're able just to say, that's on me. You're a victim then. You're a victim then. Some of you have worked for companies and they lay off the whole division. You're a victim. But at what point do you say, maybe the way I've held things have made that victimization far more significant than it really should be? I think losing my eye was like this because it was really my fault. I was the one that designed the bomb that blew up and, and took out my eye. And I was standing around with seven other dudes and nobody even got a piece of glass in them. And it just completely blew up my right eye, almost took out my left eye. And for a long time I had to say, well, it, it was my fault. But the simple fact that nobody else got hurt really bothered me. It really bothered me. And I had to come to grips with the fact it is what it is. I have to be who I am. I'm never going to have another right eye this side of heaven. And I had to be okay with it. And it took me a long time. And some of you need to start taking the baby steps that will allow you to come out from under your dad's words when you were a kid. Or graduating with a degree that isn't even worth the paper that it's written on. And being able to say, I'm not a victim. As for me and my house, this is what we're going to do in light of where I'm at. Take responsibility. Plead with God to send His Spirit to allow you to be the finest human being you could be. And you'll find out really quickly you can do far more than you ever thought with God in your life. Far more. All right, I've, I've gone too long. Um, I'm going to pray, and Zach is going to come up, and we're going to take communion. This is just a time where we're actually professing our faith. This, this is just a, two elements, a cup of wine and a piece of bread. They represent a broken body and spilt blood. And when we do this, we're saying, I'm a Christian. I'm not perfect, but I trust Christianity. It's my faith. So, let's pray. Father, I would ask that these, these moments would be sacred. Not just to us, but to you. And you would extend to us a clarity of thought that would allow us to access parts of our lives just for a few moments and examine ourselves to thank you for these realities that we've looked at. You've saved us in the past. You're saving us from sin in the present today. And you will save us because we're your children. You've forgiven us and you're at work in our lives for us and not against us. We're not your enemies any longer. Help us to believe that deeply. Help us to celebrate that in our communion and our worship. I pray that this room would be filled with the chorus of the voices of your people and that your name would be honored among us and that you would be pleased. 
So we commit these moments to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find audio of the series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com. 